This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. It's a Guy Jeans podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Guy Jeans. Thanks for listening and supporting the podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, please make sure to subscribe to this channel and make a comment in the comment section below. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, please make sure to write a quick review as it helps the podcast grow and it's totally appreciated. Also, if you get a chance, please share this podcast with all your friends and family as that helps too. This is season number three, episode number 95. And today is kind of cool and that I'm taking clips from various previous podcasts that I've done with different biologists, a professor from UCLA, a person from Caltrout, a fish and wildlife game warden, and a conservationist. All these clips are super interesting to me and I hope that they are for you too. So let's get started with the first clip from episode number 18 with retired California fish and game warden Terry Mullen as he talks about catching some bobcat poachers. Go home, you know, don't keep doing that kind of stuff. I've had other situations too, but you know, nothing like about what you're about to tell, tell everybody too, which is pretty incredible. <laughs> um, so you sent me a picture, um, which blew my mind. And, um, for you guys, if you guys can imagine, um, uh, it's Terry, um, the warden holding, um, I believe Bobcat pelts mm-hmm. and there's, um, I don't know how many on there. It was like maybe 20. There was a total of 62. Oh, <laughs> so 62 pellet pelts. Um, and he's holding them up and there's a picture of him. And so you want to elaborate on what happened with that? That's pretty crazy. Yeah. Uh, bobcat trapping uh, now in California is illegal. Uh, the commercialization of bobcat pelts. Uh, several years ago, it was uh, legal to actually uh, trap bobcats and, um, you know, they had body gripping traps back in the days when Mike Stone was working. But when I came on, it was box traps. And uh, a quick question: What, real quickly, what, why, why would, why do they, what do they do with these pelts? They- uh, these pit, uh, actually, there is a market. Uh, there was a market, probably still is. Uh, for example, over in Russia and China, you oh, know, okay. some of these uh, colder areas, you know, on the globe. Uh, if people have, you know, lots of money, then, you know, what's one of the you look at it, you know, people drive very expensive vehicles. They have very expensive homes. They have very expensive diamonds. And, um, you know, fur 
here in uh, California and the United States is, you know, it's, it's taboo. You know, some people don't like to see it and you go to other parts of the country and it's like, Hey, you know, we, we, this is what we wear. You okay. know, it helps keep us, keeps us warm. So okay. there actually is a market. Okay. And everything that we do in law enforcement is you follow the money. There's always money to be made. And that's why I think the crimes are being committed. So this particular, um, um, situation is, um, is actually a number of them, but, um, where was this? Uh, this is, I don't want to be too, okay. Okay. Let's say, let's say it's in California. Okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Yeah. It's in California. And I'll just tell you, I just tell you this, that, um, I used to teach Bobcat dropping at the uh, Fish and Game Academy, actually testified alongside the, um, uh, you know, the, the director of Fish and Game and talked to the commission about, um, you know, Bobcat trapping. And, um, you know, the necessity of, you know, these people we're maintaining are, uh, for some people, it's, um, you know, it's a heritage for them. You know, they grew up hunting and fishing and, and trapping and, and chasing bears with, with dogs and what have you. And that became taboo. And um, so what happened on this uh, particular case is uh, we have a person that uh, they were raised trapping and, you know, it's body gripping traps is, you know, that's what they do. And it's, you know, the, the, yeah, the clamping anything that grips the body okay. and, and prevents it, um, you know, as a body gripping trap. And um, what was happening is, you know, when you, when you trap a bobcat, uh, with a body gripping trap, you know, it, you could, it's indiscriminate. It traps everything, you know, it traps oh, right. a, a kitty cat, it traps a rabbit, it traps a raccoon, a, a possum, um, anything it's indiscriminate. And so they went to these live box traps that have a guillotine door that shuts behind it. Whenever the animal goes into the cage, puts its nose on the, uh, the scent ball. And then, you know, boom, now you have a life, whatever it is inside the trap. It's like, Oh, I don't want that. You know, that's a, that's a raccoon. That's a rabbit. That's a, um, and then they let it go. Greed gets the best of most of us. And whenever there's money to be made, what was happening is at this particular time, the average uh, price of a bobcat was about $674 per person. The top cat in that year was $2,100. That's for one bobcat. I actually had people that were taking two months of leave of absence to go and trap bobcat. They were making anywhere from forty-five dollars to $60,000 in two months. Oh, wow. So the, you know, smugglers blues, you know, the lure of easy money mm-hmm. and it's fun. I actually right. went out with, uh, you know, some guys that were, you know, trapping. I got to watch trapping, you know, mm-hmm. firsthand I would set trail cameras and I got really good at tracking humans. And I ended up teaching at the Academy on, you know, how to set trail cameras and how to track humans. And, and how do you actually keep your feet off of the ground when you're walking out to check a trap? Because the trapper, he's making his money looking at the ground. And surely he's going to see your boot heel print right. So I used to carry multiple sets of shoes in my, my patrol vehicle. I wore sandals. I wore, uh, you know, different types of soles. Interesting. Uh, I actually kept a, uh, a large uh, wool green um, army blanket with me. And so what I would do is actually lay the magic carpet out in front of me and I'd mm. walk over it. And then I would just walk right to their trap because it kind of distributes evenly your weight. You go out there, you look at whose trap it is, and sometimes there's no trap number, which is a violation. It's in the wrong place. It's on private property. It hasn't been checked because you had your trail camera on it. 
and they're supposed to be checked, uh, you know, daily. And so I would actually start zeroing in on the very, very small percentage of people that weren't doing it right. And that's something I saw in fishing game too. We used to call them the one percenters. Mm-hmm. 99% of the, the folks that are out there trying to get a critter are doing it right. Mm-hmm. It's the one percenters. It's the repeat offenders. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that we zero in on. And those are the people that I enjoy chasing because there's really no better thrill than chasing a two-legged animal that has the same intellect as you. <laughs> oh, my God. That's funny. Yeah, how fun. It's fun. Oh, my God. It's the funnest job I've ever had. This next clip is from Professor Michael Shin from episode number 50. Michael Shin is a professor in the UCLA Department of Geography. He is an expert in geospatial methods and techniques. And in this clip, he talks about climate change and golden trout. And as I understand, because there is such pressure on that particular uh, stream network, Uh it's recovered. You know, you you definitely can catch rainbows and big big fish now. But at the same time, it's, you know, again, it goes back to how much management do you want? Uh, what makes it a natural experience? You know, I mean, mm-hmm. everything is constructed to a certain degree and managed. Yeah. Um, and I'm not sure how, if the public really understands the amount of work it takes to keep the fishery healthy and then what exactly healthy means, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, um, I guess, too, just kind of, you know, for your information, you know, fishing up in mm-hmm. the, up in that area, you know, the Menachee area, and just basically the South Fork of the Kern, let's say, yeah. um, there is uh, there there still is a lot of golden trout, you know, but they're mixed in with like golden hybrid slash yeah. slash with brown trout as well in there, right? Uh-huh. And then um, so you know there are a lot of fish, but they don't they don't I'm not sure if they're like you know they they all seem to not be like completely pure every once in a while you would you'll see one that goes oh that you know that one looks pure but you know you start you start seeing (laughs) a lot of spots on them you know in other words you know on the ones down in that area another interesting another interesting thing um and maybe you can you know shed light on this for me there's a creek that's a tributary to uh the south fork of the current and this is crazy right so Uh there's this creek that's a tributary to the south fork of the current and I love fishing it. It's a little tiny stream, but it has uh, pure Australian golden trout in it and, and, with, and it doesn't have any brown trout in it or anything like that. Uh-huh. It's just this beautiful stream. And the last couple of years, it dries up completely, right? Yeah. I mean, like, like dust, like you go into it and you're like, yeah. oh my God, it's just sand in here, you know? And then yeah. the, the next year you go back there in the spring and it's full of trout again. Yeah. And it, it, you know, wild fish. And I, and I'm like, how does, how is that even possible? How does that, how does that even work? You know, it's, it's, un, yeah. it's unbelievable. You know, it's like, <laughs> how does that, it really how is. Does, I don't understand it, you know, and it's, it's always mind boggling to me because the stream is completely dry. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you go back there in the spring and usually it flows year round. Right. Yeah. And then you go back there in, in the spring and there's good flows and the fish are back. And it's like, what? 
and they're you know it's, <laughs> they don't stock it or anything you know it's all it's no all wild. absolutely yeah. yeah what do you think that is are they just swimming no yeah you know, i think the explanation the, the simplest explanation is you know life finds a way it's mind-boggling to me it is it really yeah. is because i mean i know in menachi meadows like they have that endangered frog yeah and it's, it's the same thing where you know a lot of these lowland areas and marshes be completely dry at the end of the summer yeah and they haven't seen the frog for a while and then all of a sudden it, it reappears and then there's a new birth and re- regeneration yeah. you know I, I think if you know if you just think about how far salmon migrate uh oh yeah you know, on their spawning rooms you know right you know trout or salmon is you kind of got to mm-hmm. think they've mm-hmm. made it they survived this long mm-hmm. and if you if you see the effort uh with which salmon travel upstream right. uh, to get to the spawning grounds. You know, I just imagine that the survival instinct in some of these fish, you know, as things get, as the temperature goes up, I'm sure there's certain signals yeah. that these fish take and they just, you know, in search of cooler water, they'll definitely travel higher. But yeah. if the head, if the headwaters are co- completely dry, you know, they're going to go down to, to yeah. the lake or to some holding pond or something that's yeah you know that's a good explanation for sure yeah you know, um yeah you know what's what's also interesting is you get like completely dry like at kennedy meadows right you know where the, uh-huh. where, the yeah. bridge, where that bridge is there and mm-hmm. that you go there you know in the summertime dust completely dry just nothing yeah. you know but downstream downstream you know that you've got like you know these creeks coming in trout creek and machine creek and all these different creeks that are like flowing all the time you know mm-hmm. and th- that makes sense you know they'll be down there and then as the water gets bigger they're going to migrate up for sure yeah it's got to be what's yeah. going on or they're holding yeah, it and up, I have you know. a lot of, yeah yeah i have colleagues you know that's their research specialty is groundwater because I, mean, I think as you know when you go up to the high country and you see all these creeks and streams like, and there's no snow on the mountains you're thinking where's all this water coming from, right? And a lot of it's, you know, if you can think about these high altitude meadows with giant sponges. And over over the years, they've absorbed a lot of water and they release it slowly and it comes out in different places. But like you said, it's it's an amazing network and an amazing system Mm -hmm. uh, that's at play here that helps, you know, all the wildlife survive. Uh, Although... As you also noted, it's getting drier and drier, and I think it's going to get a little harder uh, moving forward. Yeah. Um, you know, I was trying to explain to my, my friends who's a, a non-believer in, uh, in climate change and uh-huh. all this. You know, you get those folks. Um, and, you know, I always, you know, I, I look at, um, you know, like the, the, uh, the Southern Sierra and mm-hmm. what's crazy about the Southern Sierra is you can see what's going on with, with uh, the trees, the, yeah, the, exactly. the, pi- the, yeah. pi- the pine trees are just getting there. I mean, they're just dead all in, yeah. the, uh, all in the Southern Sierra. Um, I mean, it's throughout the whole Southern Sierra, a uh, whole Sierra, but I mean, in the Southern Sierra, especially it is unbelievable the amount yeah. of dead trees, you know, and in that, that darn, uh, bark beetle gets in there and, and just anni- yep. annihilates them. And so, yeah. so my question is, are you, are you seeing this like all over the, the Sierra mountains as far as like things just getting drier and drier or, or all oh, over the West? 
it's all over the American West. Yeah. And the, I mean, it's all over the world, actually, you know, yeah. whether or not uh, you believe it. I think, you know, maybe the question is, 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 you know, do you appreciate the current relationship you have with the wilderness and the outdoors? Right. And do you want to maintain it? Right. Yeah. Well, you know, and I think yeah, I do and I want to preserve it. And yep. I, I love being outdoors. And so I'm going to do everything I can regardless of what's happening uh, to help it. And, you know, I think the number of fires that we see in the American West increasing, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's a, like I said, it's a multifaceted issue. It's not completely yeah. um, nature at work. I mean, it's part, partly management, right? Yeah. You go into some forest and they're super dense because uh, we haven't let anything burn. Mm-hmm. So there's a balance between letting some things burn and uh, foresting, forestry, mm-hmm. uh, and not. So, I mean, there's, I, th- I don't think it's useful to talk in either or type of language, which we kind of often get ourselves in in these debates, either yeah. your way or the highway or my way or the highway. You know, that doesn't do anybody any good. Right. Some more of a, I kind of try to take a more moderate and nuanced approach and think about, hey, I like to fish. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, if, yeah. you know, it kind of boils down to the selfish point of view, but at the same yeah. time, I think it's something everybody can relate to that, you know, there's something out there. If you like to camp, if you like to hike. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, you know, what's crazy, what's crazy is, um, you know, been doing, I've been, I've had my, my store, well, gosh, now it's going on, uh, 20, over 20 years. Right. And so mm-hmm. the change in the stream and, you know, uh, of course I, I've, I fished it, you know, the Kern and all that way before yeah. that as well, before I actually opened up a business and whatnot. So it's been longer than that, but just in the amount of time that I've actually, you know, had my, my fly shop and guide service, just the amount of, um, you know, the amount of fires that I've seen in that area is mind boggling, you know, just, yeah. just in the Southern Sierra range. I think I've seen yeah. every mountain burn at least yeah. once in that area and, and across Lake Isabella as well. But the thing, yeah. the thing is, that's really interesting about that and the drought. And, um, you know, in 2000, in 2002, um, you know, we had this giant fire called the McNally fire and it just, uh-huh. do you remember that? And it just, that bur- one I do not, uh, it just burned and burned all the way up into the golden, yeah. golden trout wilderness, you know? And, <laughs> and then we had these record rains the next, you know, that next, uh, uh, that next fall, the next winter. Uh-huh. right? And so all that black sediment and everything goes into the, the upper current. Yeah. Exactly. And it was just a mess, you know, and the river got up to, I don't know, 35,000 cubic feet where it was almost hitting the the Kernville bridge, you know, it was just unbelievable. But I mean, it's just insane. You know, the amount of, of uh, damage that is occurring in, in some of the, in some of the areas on a positive note though, you know, after everything cleared, all that sediment and everything turned into nice plants and, yeah you know nice yeah life life finds a way right it's kind of there's no absolute right right or wrong way to address these things i mean that's the thing i think um i'm sure lake isabella has never been as low as it's been recently and that's that's the thing 
This next clip is from episode number 11 with California Department of Fish and Wildlife biologist Craig Feeler and Evan King, who discussed the tule elk and the Rocky Mountain elk that have turned up in Kernville, California. Yeah. So probably a couple of days a week I'm out there. How, let's talk. Let's talk about the tule elk. So a lot of people don't know this, but I think it was yesterday a elk was spotted in Kernville, mm-hmm. and a lot of people don't know that. Um, this I think that's the first time we've ever had an sure. elk mm-hmm. show up in Kernville in the Kernville golf was course. Was yesterday? It was yesterday. Oh no, that's awesome. Yeah. So. You know, it's kind of neat to, to hear that. And I showed you guys the picture and stuff, mm-hmm. and you guys confirmed it. It was an elk. And it was a, what kind do you think that was? It's hard to say. I would say the hunch is Rocky Mountain Elk. Rocky Mountain Elk. Okay. Yeah, right. So let's talk about a little bit about that. Okay. Let's talk about the Rocky Mountain Elk um, versus the Thule Elk. Mm-hmm. Um, the Thule Elk are endemic. Endemic. Yes. Yeah. And so um, let's talk about that, you know, okay. and what you guys know about that. Um, the Thule elk and then also the Rocky Mountain sure. elk that are here mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Sure. Uh, no. I don't know, the Thule elk are, you know, it's a comeback story there. Uh-huh. There's three remaining Thule elk left. Yeah. And uh, wow. there was a rancher in Los Banos, and, and I hope I get the story right, but that's how he, he gathered them up. And be, between those three animals, that's what we have now for a herd. Mm-hmm. And, so and, he, this dude saved him. He yeah. saved him. Yeah, yeah that's so basically yeah. late late eighteen hundreds. I want to say Henry Miller, but yeah, no, it was Henry Miller. Henry Miller. It was Henry Miller. Yeah. So is, not to interrupt you, but no. so the, the those guys, those three. Um, what about the ones that are over by Bishop? Are that is that a different herd, yeah, or we, is it the same ones? We, we the department um, put animals over there. Okay, yeah, on purpose. Okay, so, so that's so the, from the, those three. Yep. So they the Sweet. population, yeah. from what I understand, they they were moved from the area that that the ranch the rancher's uh, plot where he had them protected they tried to put them on yosemite and then they yosemite's like we don't want them anymore they're getting a little bit too too numerous and so they were trying to find a place to put them so the department came in and helped out and they ended up in the owens valley um and and then the tule elk reserve is kind of in near outside of bakersfield is kind of where they uh, some retain were retained there but they got moved from there and they've kind of just been repopulating certain spots. That's been like the donor population. The Tule Elk Reserve. Yeah, they're doing awesome. I mean, so how many are there now? Uh, it's, from what I understand, there's uh, about 5,700 in the state. So weed. Yeah. And, That's awesome, Yeah, they're man. doing really well. Wow. Yeah. And they do they like that kind of like high desert or that kind of a desert kind of kind they're of valley environment? floor. Valley, yeah, valley floor, floor, coastal. Yeah, okay, all cool. the way out. Yeah. They open country yeah they don't do well in higher elevations and okay. that's like the kind of difference between these rocky mountain elk okay and then the tule elk they're native to the you know, valley floor of california they okay. would be in the grassland and if you think of the historical condition of the valley there used to be tule lake and yeah. buena vista lake yeah was a lot bigger um, okay and those lakes were they were commonly going and using those resources back before when they were available um and so you know, in the current areas now, they're in the grassland, and they they use all kinds of open habitat at yeah. this point. So, are they going to start hunting them? Is that we what's do. Already, yeah. yeah. Or they have they yeah, already started? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's um that's if you want, you know, three of the, you know, one of the species of elk, you know, that tule elk, you know, Popular. Rocky Mountain, Roosevelt, and stuff, 
if you want to hunt that, you're going to have to do it here in California. California. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard to do. Is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just got my results. Didn't get a tag this year. You know, oh, yeah. Every year. There's so a lottery how, and a lot of How many yeah, people get it? public how, hunts. How many people get the... Um, God, I don't even know how many tags we give out, but it, you know it's it's in the hundreds. Um, okay. And there's there's these private land managements and, and and landowners that are encouraged to do habitat restoration and stuff that enhances wildlife, and they they get some tags allotted to them. And then there's the like the hunter like me and you and everybody that just wants to put in for it. And there's certain zones and so lottery yeah. style. Yeah. 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 And is it is it the same type of deal? You you hunt the the bucks. No, you can have both on some of these because the population is yeah. doing so well. And so oh, some of the, and you know, these aren't as widespread. So sometimes they're in concentrated areas. Uh, Grizzly Island's a good example. It's like a wildlife mm. area and it's got a lot of elk. And so to manage that population, you can take, you know, a bull and cow. You know, so. I should have said bull. So bull excuse yeah, me. Yeah. That, yes. Bull and cow is for <laughs> elk and then uh, buck, yeah, and buck and doe. And doe. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Yes. All right. Cool. So talk about the, uh, the uh, Rocky Mountain. Uh, elk and how how did, they, how did that happen? Why why is this Rocky Mountain elk here in Kernville? Yeah, we we assume it came from like the Tone Ranch area, and that's you know huge landowner. But from what I'm understanding is there's a, a rancher outside of Tachapi that had these these Rocky Mountain elk and they years got ago, out. yeah, years, years and ago. years ago they got out, and from that herd they got out, they populated and they they gravitated towards you know what is now known as Tone Ranch, and there's there's just hundreds and thousands of them out there. They're, Is there? Yeah, they're doing really well. Yeah, big. Really? And, and they're they're a substantially larger animal. Mm-hmm. And um, So it, people are hunting those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And But, you know, it's it's primarily on Tone Ranch, and they, they have their own hunt program in Tone Ranch. Is, they're the landowner, so it's not just public access. But, um, yeah, they're, there's a lot of elk It's a bigger there. animal. So It's substantially bigger than a Tulio. So know. why are they staying on Tone Ranch? I mean, we got, we got one rover here does that mean that they might be moving this way or how does that it's a very very strong possibility i mean you get you got you know dominating bulls they got a harem they got their cows and they Mm. they, and so you got these younger animals spike raghorn bulls we call them and they're gonna need to go find find their females and their herd and so they're they're gonna move around and fences are yeah. like uh barbed wire fences aren't really a barrier for them they can just jump those yeah, easy just yeah yeah they, there's not very few <laughs> there's few barriers that they can't get so, through so what is this guy doing here in kernville is he just he's happy just yeah. cruising around <laughs> eating yeah he's out in the golf course right. just yeah, rubbing perfect yeah, for yeah. Them. yeah. 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 they'll, they'll move some long distance yeah yeah where yeah. i mean will he move up do you think the the river or is it kind of just no one knows yeah and, i mean what you, do you know think? If it is Rocky Mountain, they're a little more adept, uh, adaptable to higher elevations and a little more rugged, you know, colder weather and whatnot. And they're, they they might, yeah, surely. It could, or it could get up here and go, well, there's no there's no ladies around. I'm going to go home and go turn around and they go all the way back. Okay. You know, but at some point, if that is, you know, he had to cross Highway 58. I know. Highway 178. Yeah. And, I mean, it's incredible. He had to go through... Um he had to go up through uh, Lake Isabella, yeah, mm-hmm. and then yeah, cross the highways there. Maybe maybe he came through Walker Basin, up sure. through Bodfish, and uh, yeah. And it's, then we're getting reports of them up in uh, the uh, Kelso, Kelso, uh, Kelso Valley, Valley Kelso Road, Valley, yeah, yeah, up in there. Yeah, okay. I've been seeing them in there. And then there's a herd out of uh, out in Jawbone, but that's more of the desert side of things. Mm-hmm. So, if it is. A tule elk, then it probably would have had to come either from Owens Valley yeah. or Lone Pine or from uh, Windwolf's Preserve, which is you know on the west side of I five. Mm-hmm. 
So I mean, that's a it's still a long way. Any way you any way you cut it, it's yeah. a long way to go. Pretty so, cool, huh? So the ones on the Tahone Ranch were put there. Are they are they from that guy's ranch that yes. ended up yeah. on there? They okay. escaped onto Tahone. Okay, yeah. interesting. And then they people pay big money big to money. go onto Tahone Ranch mm-hmm. to get those guys, don't they? A lot of money. This next clip is from episode number sixty-two with Roger Bloom, who's a retired California Department of Fish and Wildlife biologist, and he talks about the incredible California Heritage Trout Program. Awesome. So let's talk about the uh, California Heritage Trout Program. And for those who don't know, what is it? Um, yeah, so it's a, a angler recognition program that uh, the department started in, I think, 2003. Uh, we initially uh, started it in the process in 2000. And it, and it stems from me going to shows and realizing that a lot of people, uh, anglers specifically, didn't know of the diversity of native trout that we had in California. And so, I, you know, after going to show after show after show, I realized we got to do something to kind of change that. Um, and so in 1998, we established the Heritage Trout Program, and, and a part of that was to promote native trout restoration and, and uh, education. Mm-hmm. So about that time, the Wyoming Department of uh, Wildlife, Fish and Wildlife had come up with the cut slam. So it was brand new. And so I reached out to those guys, Ron Remick specifically. He was kind of the, the guy that created it. And I started talking to him about that and wanted to replicate it because I, I, I found it fascinating. My wife and I went there and we did the cut slam. And I was like, we got to have something like this in California. But it, but we didn't want to do exactly the same thing. And that's basically a program that acknowledges anglers that catch for the, for the uh, Wyoming one, the four different cutthroats. And we have way more native trout than, you know, just four. So after about three years, starting in 2000 and ending in 2003, we came up with a program that acknowledged anglers that catch six uh, native trout in California in their original watersheds. Um, and we hemmed and hawed about the name, you know, I, I threw out the, the California heritage trout six pack that got denied. Um, <laughs> we, had, we had all kinds of fun trying to figure out that aspect and the number two, cause we have so many. Um, so we got out a map and we figured out, you know, we didn't want anglers necessarily just do this in a weekend. They had to put some time in and do some research cause the education, mm-hmm. the big part of it is learning where these fish live in the unique habitats. So we landed on six, um, and so anglers that catch six, they document uh, and submit an application with a photo. Uh, they receive a certificate that's kind of customized to their catch with Joe Tomilleri's images. Mm-hmm. And, and they also get a hat. So, um, so that's kind of it in a nutshell. I think the program is north of 500 anglers that have completed it to date. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, right now we're kind of in a holding pattern for the Paiute because right now, given our restoration, we had to kind of close that fishery down, at least the ones that would qualify. So hopefully in the future, that's a whole nother aspect in the story we could talk about. Um, Anglers will be able to go after the Paiutes and some anglers were lucky enough to get some early on in the challenge. Uh, But there's still plenty of opportunities to get the six. If, uh, if you put in the work and talk to folks like you and realize where those fish are. Here's some feedback for you, and um, let me let me clarify this. So you were the one or one of the people responsible for the Heritage Trout Program. It sounds like. 
Yeah, so that was early awesome. on. I was I spent a lot of years in that program, the Harrison Wild Trout Program. In 2000, I was a regional wild trout biologist for Southern California, and that's when I came up with the idea and worked with Ron in, in Wyoming. Um, so I spent a, a large part of my career either as a regional wild trout biologist or in the statewide crew running around doing wild trout work and then and then moved on but uh, yeah that was a, a large part of my career at the department working in that program did you write the book that goes along with that too yeah well <laughs> i ghost wrote it so i had my staff uh write it so they could get you know some writing experience but the design the format the concept the artwork on the front all of that stuff i i I, I worked on uh, for probably about two or three years. And so, yeah, you did you get a copy of that? Of course, man. And yeah. I, and I, what a beautiful book. And I'm, I, you know, quote, don't quote me on this, but is, is that book free if people want it? It, it is. And yeah. there was, you know, classic California bureaucracy. They wanted to sell it. And so initially, because it's a beautiful book, it's a, it's a coffee it table type style. Um, a lot of photos we put a lot of effort in into maximizing the photos and the maps it's and and have it as a guide but i, I felt really uncomfortable you know trying to make it and, and charge it uh to the anglers so i found some grant funding and we got an initial run to print the first uh version uh they're basically they ran out of them um i've got some before i left i asked uh, <laughs> the program lead I'm like, hey, I'm working at a fly shop. I will, I will be selective and try to get these out to uh, folks, you know, that show that passion. Yeah. Um, but I do believe they're planning on doing another run, and and okay. hopefully those will be free as well. Yeah, I got, I got one. Uh, I, I don't know where I got it. I think I, I might have got it from you at one of the the meetings in Sacramento or something. I'm yeah, sure. I wanted to make sure, you know, because having them in the shop and having just like a, a shop copy, so mm -hmm. especially where you're at with where you're juxtaposed to all those fish on the Kern, um, I in the club. So I really wanted the shops and the clubs to have one so they could use as kind of a reference. So I'm, I'm glad you got one. Well, feedback. I, I'm, I've got a, uh, another question too, but I'm going to give you some feedback on, you know, uh, since you created that program, um, it's helped me uh guide people um you know in the areas where i'm at you know for the golden trout and the little kern golden and the kern river rainbow um and i just wanted to let you know that you know that's created uh you know some some work for for us down here awesome awesome yeah. i figured it would be <laughs> yeah <laughs> man oh big great. time people come from yeah, all over the world man to yeah. to catch golden trout you know that's like a big deal yeah we did there was a period where um I was running clinics throughout the state for anglers that just, you know, wanted to go out. And so it was a, almost basically a free guided trip and we would camp out at Peppermint and some of the other places. And I would take them down to the forks and yeah. uh, to clicks Creek. And, you know, we would do the rounds. Um, and it, that's probably one of the most enjoyable, you know, rewarding things I ever did was, you know, working with those anglers to get their challenge and take them to that unique place. So yeah, I'm, I'm glad you guys are seeing Angler's still coming in and asking for that. That's awesome. So how many fish are there in the state of California? Native uh, fish. Na native, uh, native trout. trout, yeah. Native trout, 11. 11. Um, <clears throat> 11 as it stands, there are some unique fish uh, in, the, in the red band complex, potentially up in Klamath, that we may add to that list. Really? Uh, oh, cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
it that's the that's the challenge and we may touch on genetics but yeah. as you go down that that rabbit hole uh we start to see some unique things get teased out um so we we may add to that list that's awesome and, yeah and and from what i understand uh the uh, bull trout was in that mix there for a while or is it is it still or is is it extinct so functionally it's extinct um mm-hmm. as far as we know there was a action um in i want to say maybe the early 90s to do a, a reintroduction program with some oregon bull trout oh awesome um, and it, yeah it was it was cool and uh, we had some challenges in regards to private property, um, and uh, there has been some recent acknowledgments that there may still be some bull trout in the McLeod drainage. Um, but we're 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 kind of challenged with uh, access to be able to verify and get the genetics. But uh, there is the chance that there's still some remnant fish from that reintroduction from the Oregon fish uh, still bumping around in the McLeod. So I heard you say red band complex, and then I also know there's a golden trout complex. So would you mind talking about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so you're well familiar with the, with the golden trout complex, and that is the Kern River Rainbow, uh, California golden trout, and the Little Kern golden trout. And so we kind of refer to that as the complex of that Kern basin um, and where those fish are, are endemic. We also kind of use that in regards to uh, the upper Sacramento uh, complex for red bands, which have the Goose Lake, the Warner Lakes, uh, and the McLeod. So we kind of use that terminology to kind of bundle those, those species and those subspecies in those areas. This next clip is from episode number 32 with Mikey Weir from Caltrout, and he talks about some of the dam removals going on in California. Um, I was looking at uh, Caltrout's website uh, yesterday and just looking at all the different projects that they have going on and, and trying to help uh, cold water species is, is amazing, isn't it? I mean, it's just... I mean, it, yeah, it, it's incredible. And the volume of work we're doing now, I mean, we, uh, I was just on my staff call before this and um, we've hired 11 new employees this year nice. alone. I mean, the growth has just been phenomenal. I mean, this, this was like through the... Uh, you know, the economic downturn, I, I, I got hired in, uh, 2012, we were just kind of like coming out of recession and, and, um, you know, through COVID and everything. I mean, our work never slowed down during COVID and it didn't affect any of our projects at all. I mean, we just kept going and, um, you know, so when I started with Caltrout, I was the, I think the 11th or the 12th employee hired. I mean, it looked like in the wow. entire organization, I was like <laughs> the 11th employee. Wow. We, we were a $1.5 million organization in 2012 when I started. And this year we're, uh, we just did our budget at like 28 million. Um, and, and like 38 employees or close to 40 employees now. So cool. So great. So yeah, they're, they're cranking and you know, we're cranking, we're all busy. Um, this month's been insane for me. Uh, I did a event last weekend and, Burnville and then a talk for a fly club in Fresno mm, on yeah. Thursday. Tomorrow I'm heading to Mammoth for a project tour yeah. back for uh, the Yuba Fest on Saturday on the Yuba River. Mm. Um, and then, you know, a couple more events after that. We, yeah, we're, we're busy. What's the, uh, what's the biggest, uh, or I guess what's the, what's the projects that you guys are most focused on right now? 
Oh gosh, there's a ton. I mean, we've got, um, you know, big projects in every region. I I think for me, one of the things that I'm the most interested and stoked on is the Klamath dam removals. Okay. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten to spend quite a bit of time up there and it's just one of my favorite places in California that that's just so remote and so wild back there, you know, wild wilderness, wild animals, wild people. It's just, um, it's such a cool corner of California and it's going to be the biggest river restoration project in history. You know, the whole world is looking at, at this and seeing, you know, how this is going to go down and, and it could serve as a model for many other, um, projects for, you know, decades to come. It's, it's the biggest social justice project probably happening in America right now, you know, re- reuniting, um, the, the tribes with their salmon, uh, restoring, Nice. continuing their historic fishing rights, you know, re giving them back a wild river, uh, in perpetuity, you know, for like the, the seven tribes up and down the Klamath that literally still rely on that river for a living every day. And there's, there's mm-hmm. not very many places like that left, you know, where a river is healthy enough to actually like provide a living for people. Yeah. And, uh, so yeah, it's a big, you know, it's a, it's a big deal. Um, and just all the economic, all the, uh, ecological benefits of it and the uh, economic benefits of it, you know, ecotourism aspect of it. And there's mm-hmm. just, it's a multifaceted project and it's a really big deal. And, and Caltrop's been, I, you know, working on that project for over 20 years. I mean, Curtis has been there, uh, I think 21, 22 years now. He's, he's been working on the Klamath dam removal since he started with Caltrop. So he's been at every, you know, all those early meetings and negotiations and all that. And then Drew Brock kind of took the reins from there for a good five years. And now we have a new guy, uh, Damon Goodman up there in Shasta and he's kind of taken over now and we're, we're, you know, highly involved. And, and then so spiraling off of that is we have all these other projects that we've been doing to, to prepare for this. So we've been really like one of the only organizations that's boots on the ground in the Shasta river, the Scott river, um, you know, trying to move a little bit into the salmon river, but working on doing good work and, and, um, restoration on the tributaries to the Klamath and specifically the Scott and the Shasta, which are two of the best spawning tributaries and also the two that are closest to the dams. And so these are the populations of fish that are going to repopulate those upper areas once the dam is out. And so we've been doing a ton of work and, and hard work. I mean, we're working with ranchers there in Siskiyou County that are, you know, primarily anti-dam removal people, mm-hmm. but we are giving them, you know, millions of dollars worth of infrastructure upgrades to their ranches um, to make them more efficient so we can keep more water in the streams and remove mm-hmm. barriers and make it better for coho salmon, for Chinook and for um, the different runs of steelhead. And, and then all the genetics work we're doing up there, um, you know, with the identification of the gene that separates spring run Chinook from fall run Chinook, they isolated the genome that, you know, proved that it's a genetic adaptation that took thousands or millions of years um, to do. And so we were able to list those fish as a separate species, which adds additional protections to them. Um, so it's, yeah, there's, there's a ton going on up there. It's like, I could, you know, go on the rest of this call just about the Klamath. There's a lot of uh, dam removal uh, projects that are in the works, right? Like the, the Matillaha dam, is that one still kind of in the works there too and have you heard anything about yeah. that 
Yeah, so, so Caltrout did a, a comprehensive analysis of basically every major dam and even a lot, most of the smaller barriers in California. Mm-hmm. And just to, to look at, you know, which ones um, are still operating, how they should be, which ones are going to need, uh, you know, infrastructure upgrades in the coming years, which ones are totally obsolete. Um, and, you know, and when I say obsolete, it just means it's just not performing the function that it was built to perform anymore. And, um, so, you know, we got dams of varying degrees all over California and, and they were built for different stuff. Some of them are hydropower dams. Some of them mm-hmm. are flood control dams. Some of them are silt controlled dams. Yeah. Some of them are dams that were built to impound water for municipal uses for agriculture and for municipalities. And so assessing whether these dams are, are still functioning. And then we distilled it down to like 25 that are, um, you know, basically, not working how they should or, or are coming up for um, needing to be upgraded. And then we distilled that down to our, our top five uh, dams, which are the, the biggest priority. And all these are the ones that are on the hit list, which is um, basically dam removal. And so you got Rins Dam on Malibu Creek. You got Matillaha Dam on mm-hmm. the Ventura River. You've got Searsville Dam um in uh in Stanford there um and then you have uh Scott Dam on the Eel River and then the Klamath dams which includes all four of the main stem dams on the Klamath and so that's our top five priorities right now all those are are um well Rins is slated for removal Matilla Hall is slated for removal it's been a 20-year process or more yeah but uh Rins was recently like um approved to be removed. And so now we're working through that process. Uh, Matilla Hall is definitely in the way. They actually just opened up the first bridge below Matilla Hall. So they had to do a bunch of infrastructure upgrades below the dam before they could remove it to accommodate for the film stuff moving through there. So they just finished the first big bridge project that's going to allow the next step for dam removal. So that's cool. Oh, wow. Um, this next clip is from episode number 35 with Gary Arnanian from the Kern River Conservancy, and he talks about the Kern River Rainbow Project. Back in end of August, Fish and Wildlife teamed up with the Merced Fly Fishers, and they sent a crew out for two weeks in the backcountry, and they did a 10-day trip to the kern Kuya Gap area, mm-hmm. and they hiked in three days to get to their first target location, and... It was all, they pretty much fished every creek, swimming hole, pond, lake, whatever you can call it, that had a body of water, they fished it, waterfalls, whatever. If they saw water flowing, they threw a fly in there to see if they'd catch something. And they caught about 200 trout, rainbow trout, um, and they did their thing. They clipped the fins and they, you know, got all that back down here. They came back after two weeks and all the samples have been sent out. Um, so I've heard different stories. I've heard it's gone to the biologists at Fish and Wildlife. I heard some of them went to UC Davis or Berkeley, and they're all being studied to see which is the most pure strain. Um, I know for a long time, Fish and Wildlife was really obsessed with 100%, and we want 100% genetic, and it's hard. You're not going to find 100% anywhere, and if that's what your goal is, and this project will never be accomplished so I've heard that they're kind of settling for 95 or 90% genetic. Um, so we'll see what happens with what they've caught up there. Um, one of the guys that went over there is a good friend of mine. He went on this trip, and he said that the country out there is just unbelievable. He's like, we caught 
Kern River and rainbows that you would dream about. You know, like the beauty, the sizes, the wildness that they were catching was unbelievable. And he's pretty stoked. He feels confident they got some good fish. These are all areas that ne- they had never searched before. And did, they've did, never fished before. Nice. It, it, um, did they film it and, and do anything like that? No, I, I sent a GoPro with them okay. uh, to film it because we're still working on that documentary that we started mm. several years ago yeah. um, to film the whole document of bringing Kern River Rainbows back here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taking a lot longer because we just didn't expect fish and wildlife to continue putting things on hold with this yeah, project. Yeah. You know, with 2018, um, we had the earthquake, right? So then there was some damage to the trail and they didn't go. And then the next year they had... Um, the volunteers were very, very old and couldn't hack the high altitude, so they got sick and they had to come back, and the trip got canceled. Then you had COVID. Then the year after that was the fires. Mm-hmm. And so then this year, it was like a green, lit, we're green light, we're gone, we're doing it. And it was like so short notice. Like I got like a 10-day notice on this, and there's yeah. no way I could have gone, yeah. and there's no way our camera guy was going to be able to go on a short yeah. notice like that. So I ran down to Bakersfield, went to Best Buy, picked up a GoPro, the best one they had, the latest model, bought extra batteries, charging cable, whatever you can imagine. I bought everything for these guys. Drove from Bakersfield all the way to Bishop to meet with them, dropped all the stuff, showed them how to use the GoPros, and, you know, they were off. And then I came back two weeks later to meet with them in Bishop, and I was going through some of the footage, and it was just, it's just Is it good? unbelievable. Oh, nice. For a bunch of amateur guys, what they got, yeah. you know, recorded is so... The, the countryside up there, obviously. Insane. It's insane. And the, the fish they were catching and the process, they documented everything like so well. You know, we gave them a shot list of what we wanted to make sure they got all that. And they did. And they did a great job. So, you know, nice, they man. brought back like, I don't know, I think like 200 hours of footage. Oh, sweet. So we it's going to take us some time to go through all yeah. that and um, figure out what's going to stay and what's not going to stay. And then obviously when you cut that, then you bring it down. You know, we have to take 200 hours and drop it to three minutes, you know. So for those that don't know, um, kind of explain like what this whole Kern River Rainbow Project is all about, what they, what they plan to do, you know, with these fish, um, what they're going to do with the hatchery, how it's all tying together, and then what the ultimate goal is for the, the Kern. Yeah. So right now, um, all the fish that you catch in the Kern River, uh, the, the really basic rainbows that you're catching are coming from the San Joaquin Hatchery. Um, they could be a combination of McLeod or Eagle Lake rainbow trout and just really um there's no consistency it's whatever they have money to buy yeah. is what they're stocking so uh the trucks come up here twice a week you know you see them driving around kernville stocking the river in town and up river um and so that's what they're doing and the goal is to get rid of that and have the fish that are being stocked in the river to be native kern river rainbows that can reproduce because the fish they're bringing there are triploids they don't reproduce they're sterile fish, and the purpose is that we don't want hybridization between, you know, farm-raised mm-hmm. fish and native fish. So until they get this all genetics things figured out and then the hatchery reopens, that means that we'll have pure Kern River rainbows being raised at the hatchery and being stocked in the lake or in the river. And those fish will be able to reproduce with each other to keep the population going and sustainable. So here's my, my question to you, and so what you think is what this is all about so yeah we have the triploid fish that are being stocked in the kern and that's been going on for years and years and years but there's a there's a dilemma there's fish that are being stocked in lake isabella that in from what i heard can reproduce and they're from nebraska or wherever they're you know the nebraska, nebraska tailwalkers mm-hmm. or whatever those fish are so do you do you know anything about that as far as like what what their plan is to do with uh with those fish because all those fish end up coming into the current of caught them 
Uh, my clients have caught them. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of a, that's kind of an interesting. Yeah. It's been brought there, up to right? conversation with fish and wildlife. Um, they yeah. don't really have an answer to that. Of course, what can they which do? Which is yeah. not surprising, but, yeah. um, you know, Lake is about that is permitted through the chamber of commerce down there. They're the ones who stock the fish for the derby every year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the eyes of fish and wildlife, it's like, well, they have a permit. They're doing everything legit. They're buying the fish from a, a licensed farmer or whatever, blah, blah, blah. So they don't see anything in their eyes. You know, like you've been to these meetings, they have, their yeah. biologists are like, the, they're not the brightest people. Yeah. You know, when we sit there, tell them that these fish are swimming upstream into the current and they're like, Oh no, they're not. That's impossible. You know, yeah. like, no, it is come here and fish and you'll see, yeah. you know, there's a reason the, the section of the river in Kernville is called steelhead run. It's because of sort of the tail walkers are showing up and the people mm-hmm. are catching these like monster trout. But yeah, it's just, you know, they see things different. Like a biologist for fish and wildlife has a different point of view than a biologist that was working for an environmental group. You know, for us, it's all about native and keeping the natives protected. Right. And on their end, it's, it's a business. Oh, they have a permit. They're legitimate so they can plant whatever the fish they want. Yeah, that's interesting. That's an interesting thing that's probably got to be addressed, you know, if they're going to do the Kern River rainbows in the, in the Kern and, and keep stocking you know, fish that can reproduce in the lake, they're going to have to, they're going to have to do figure something out there. Yeah. I'm sure when know? that day comes, you know, like it's going to be an advocacy thing between, you know, us and the flat fishing community. And like, you know, we're going to have to find a, a medium because obviously we don't want to ruin an amazing event that the chamber of commerce is putting on that yeah. draws tens of thousands of people here for its commerce and the economy here. It's a booster. But at the same time, like we, you know, the people that are fishing the derby don't care what they're catching. They're not stoked if they catch and they caught a native current, rainbow or right. they caught a catfish they don't care yeah. those guys just want to catch fish sure so it's an interesting interesting thing that goes on so back to the hatchery so the pipe that you were talking about that needs to be fixed is that the one coming from kr3 um i don't know they didn't really describe oh, okay they didn't give me a description they said that there's a pipe that was very very old and it's deteriorated and it was not caught in the initial assessment of the, the renovations okay interesting what other projects you've been working on um, we're doing some fire prevention stuff as well with the Forest Service and Kern County Fire. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're trying to get um, preparedness, readiness programs going for people up here. We've had two devastating wildfires in the last two years here. Um, and one thing we learned is no matter how much people think they're prepared, they're not. Yeah. And, you know, with the French fire, we saw that. And we stepped up and we tried to help as much as we could with the resources we had. Mm-hmm. And after that fire, I just said, you know, like, I'm going to start looking into how we can help this community be better off, not just being prepared for it, but as a response as well. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you know, we went out our way and we were like buying pizzas from the pizza barn and taking them to the shelters where people were uh, sleeping, who mm-hmm. lost their homes. We were taking pizzas down to the fire camp to feed the firefighters. And, you know, we did everything we could to help out. But I just saw that there was a void, you know, and yeah. living in a rural community like in Kern County, like that's that's like the downside is we live like in this beautiful place. But the resources are so limited for people in these rural areas and they have to rely heavily on nonprofits to step up sometimes. And mm-hmm. I think that's where Kern River Conservancy has been successful at doing is we identify the problem is failed government responses or not enough response. So we have to step that up and help out, you know, um, during the French fire, people were complaining they weren't getting information from the agencies. Nobody knew what was going on. And we use our resources and our connections to find out the most up-to-the-minute fire information there was so we know how to address that. And 
you know, we had a great partnership with the Forest Service and Kern County Fire and, try and get that information out there. As a third party, non-agency, we don't have red tape. We don't have bureaucrats telling us what to do. We can publish that. And that's what we were doing. We were putting fire information out as fast as we were getting it. Mm-hmm. You know, if somebody's working on a line, boom, like I know about it. You know, like here's what's oh, going wow. on. This might, this might be coming down. But I couldn't really post that right away, you know, until I got confirmation from the higher ops. But we were putting it out there and we became like this resource of information for everybody out here. Yeah. And it really grew the capacity of this group to not just be like an environmental group, but we became like a big beacon for the community for help, yeah. you know. Did you ever think that would be where, no. where you guys would lead? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I mean, like today I was at a homeless meeting, you know, like yeah. we're trying to figure out how we can um, address the homeless situation in the valley. right here in, in, the in the valley? Yeah. Oh, okay. So now we're getting involved in that because we do have homeless people that camp in the campgrounds. Mm-hmm. And those are things that we have to deal with, whether it's trash mm-hmm. or stuff like that. Um, so that falls on the hands of whether it's BLM or Forest Service or even with us. Sometimes things can get a little busy, especially in the off season, like right now. A lot of the employees are gone. They're seasonal employees. So a lot of volunteers start picking up the slack on. With everything going on in the world today, right now could be the best time ever to diversify your retirement savings with precious metals like gold and silver. I just bought some precious metals myself and I got them from the top rated company, Gold Co. They couldn't have made the process easier and their customer service was impeccable. Gold Co. has helped thousands of people just like you and me place over $2.5 billion in gold and silver. They're rated A-plus by Better Business Bureau. They've earned over 5,000 five-star reviews. They're a seven-time incorporated 5,000 winner. And that's just mentioning a few of their accomplishments. There's plenty more. Right now, for my listeners, they're offering up to $10,000 in bonus silver. You heard that right, up to $10,000 in bonus silver, but only while supplies last. Go to goldco.com guy to learn more. That's goldco.com slash guy diversify your savings with gold and silver today at goldco.com slash guy it's a guy jeans podcast